0: hello howdy it's me oh howdy
1: how you doing
0: not bad so you? Guess, uh, not,
1: not not the worst i don't know it's weird i guess with our continual uh weather report the weather is super good here but i feel weirdly crappy today it's like a weird mix it's like uh, it's sunny and warm but i don't know i think i just didn't sleep enough
0: oh it's nice here today we're finally getting some melt
1: yeah, me too. My apartment's flooding. Actually, it's melting so much. <laughs> but oh, is it? Oh, bummer. Yeah, that place. I mean, it's a fucking disaster. My apartment is so dumb. But you know, I guess like it's one of those like. Uh, well, I guess people listening to this podcast probably don't know about that necessarily. But yeah, that I couldn't get an apartment like this was my my harsh reality of uh, how my adult life is. That I don't uh, <laughs> I don't have any any credit report history or uh, proof of employment or blah blah blah. So. Yeah, I'm just glad I have a house, basically.
0: Yeah, and you're not paying cheap rent either.
1: No, I mean, I guess, I don't know, it's not so terrible, but it is the worst my rent has ever been. Because, you know, the added bonus of living by yourself, which I don't think is very much of a bonus at all.
0: Well, maybe if you kind of, spring's coming, if you start rooting around, you might be able to maybe share some space with somebody.
1: Yeah, this dude Jason that I do the wrestling podcast with, his friend Ben from uh, Halifax has just been here since, I think since August. And uh, yeah, he said he might need a roommate. So, so you know, yeah, I think if something like that comes up, I'll definitely take it.
0: And where does he live?
1: Right now he lives uh, somewhere on Yonge Street, Yonge and Eglinton, I think. So I assume he would move somewhere less expensive, but I don't know, who knows. But I guess that's the weird thing. Even if it was somewhere more expensive, it would be less expensive <laughs> with a roommate. So,
0: Well, and uh, you are kind of far out, too, aren't you?
1: Yeah, although really that hasn't been a big problem. But I mean, especially just for hunkering down for the winter, yeah, it did its job. But I mean, yeah, that place, it's like freezing cold. And the little bit I was here in the summer, it was super hot. And now there's water everywhere. Just like, I don't know, whatever. Fuck <laughs> this place.
0: And when you say water everywhere, like it's right in your unit?
1: oh man yeah like everywhere like uh, the way it is is there's like a kind of main room with like a bed and stuff and it's uh, elevated a little it's like a half a foot higher and then there's a little kitchen and a bathroom and those bottom parts yeah it's just like a little puddle that there is a drain down there too because like that's where the laundry and stuff is so it's all kind of flowing into this drain but it's coming out of nowhere like it just seeped up out of the floor it's weird
0: yeah and see the drain is probably frozen
1: uh, I don't think so. No, I think the drain's fine. It's just, uh, it's just, it's got it's going through my place to get to the drain at a very slow rate.
0: Yeah, oh, bummer.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so today's big activity, I keep having things going on on Mondays, but that Gilmore Girls Improv, they're doing another one of those, so.
0: Oh, how did it go the first time? Uh, I
1: thought it was pretty funny. They, uh, you, you know, uh, so there was, uh, her original boyfriend was this tall guy named Dean. I don't know if you remember Gilmore oh, Girls this yes. much. Oh, he
0: worked in the grocery store, didn't he, or Yeah,
1: right, Something. So, apparently I'm the only one who liked Dean. I don't know, I thought he seemed like a likable young man, but everybody else hates Dean. They like Jess, the next kid, who is, like, the shorter kid who smoked and was all tough and blah, blah, blah. So in this improv, there was it was a girl that played Dean, and she basically just played him like he was, like, mentally deficient. <laughs> Everyone laughed and laughed, <laughs> and I was like, oh, poor Dean. And then uh, I ran into that girl who... uh played dean like a couple weeks after that matt had a a show some kind of comedy show and she was there and i was like oh you were in gilmore improv you were dean like everyone hates dean i like dean and she's like no i hate dean (laughs) so yeah no one likes dean
0: well he was just a high school type i think
1: yeah he was pretty bland i guess she was
0: still in high school though i think when she was hanging out with that guy right
1: uh yeah yeah it was the early days yeah yeah, and he's just some bland guy, worked on cars, worked at the, the supermarket, <laughs>
0: but I don't know.
1: Like, I guess I said before, like when we talked about it last time, I liked the early seasons of that show better because the less conflict, the more I liked it, which I guess is just the reverse of why people generally watch TV. So when she got her other boyfriends and they're all like, oh, the, the drama, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't like this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I liked the early days when she was still in high school, and once she kind of went off and started the university thing, and all that, yeah, and the the mother was uh, then picked up with that fellow that runs the restaurant, right, oh, and that was so dramatic, and off and on, and off and on, and,
1: yeah, so basically the way this thing worked is they just pick, uh, they have the crowd yell suggestions for, like, what happened, what's happening in town that week, and then they just make up a weird episode, so, (laughs) the the girl who played Susan Summer's character, you know, uh, Babette, just, oh yeah. She was amazing. She like spot on impersonation. It was so so funny, <laughs> and that was about the main highlight. I don't know. It was okay though. It's good enough. I'm going again.
0: Well, it must have been uh, all right if they or they wouldn't be doing it again.
1: Yeah, and I mean I just kind of like it because uh, you know improv shows it, it is basically just an improv show. It's just people trying to come up with jokes, but uh, but I like that it's wrapped in this little Gilmore Girls package. Like that's enough for me. It's five dollars. I'll go. Why not? But uh, I did have a little topic I could ask you about while I. The thing doesn't start till eight o'clock, so I got a little time. The time is now six twenty. Yeah, and I got to travel, but yeah, I got a little time. Uh, So I can tell you what I had on my mind and see where it goes. I'm also just drinking a coffee because I didn't sleep enough. So uh, you know that that comic book mouse, the uh, Art Spiegelman comic. Oh yeah,
0: excellent.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, like, the only comic book that ever won a Pulitzer Prize, and it definitely deserved it. Like, it was really good. I was even thinking about that, how... That that comic is so good. Like, I read it last year and was like, yeah, that is good. But when I first read it, I don't know, I was, like, 12 or something, and it still worked. Like, it works for everybody. Like, it really is pretty well, I amazing. I think
0: that's the cartoon characters in it. Right. Uh, they draw your attention to... To, to the
1: book. And uh, and I think too, just that that uh, that his dad. I mean, his dad. It was like for anyone who hasn't read it, it's this guy telling the story of his dad's uh, you know World War Two experiences, going through concentration camps and stuff. And his dad's a total nut now. And like uh, like, do you remember that little story where, as uh, as an older person, he's staying at a place that has free gas, but uh, so he leaves the gas stove turned on at a low heat all day because he doesn't have to pay for the gas, but he does have to pay for matches. And he doesn't want to pay for matches to light the stove so like it's totally out of whack but it's just like his mindset is that you know just maximize everything and take advantage of every little situation and like and it seems crazy but then you hear his whole story and it's like maybe those extra matches would have saved his life or something you know but I was thinking I think that's part of what makes it just fun even when you're a kid is it it is like a fun adventure story because his dad is so hard-headed and like it, like one of the the famous lines from it is, after like a year of his life being a nightmare, and then they send him to Dachau and he goes, and here, my troubles really began. <laughs> it's like, are you crazy? Your troubles began fifty miles back, buddy, but yeah, like, but, but
0: everything's relative,
1: yeah but and,
0: and so what what appeared to be troubles looks like nothing compared to what he what would have gone on what in Dachau, it?
1: yeah, and his dad's like hard headed. You know, super old school Jewish mentality like makes it makes it less depressing to read. Like, uh, there's a part about how his mom wrote a bunch of journals, and the dad threw them away, and Art is all you know really upset that he didn't get to have his mom's journals. But uh, the weird thing is, like, just from an artistic standpoint, like, I think having his mom's journals would have made that that book not as good, because then it it wouldn't be this singular vision of this one guy that went through it. It would have been. The mom with all her depressive issues in this whole thing, and it just would have, you know, the clarity of this, like, it seems weird to describe it as an adventure story, but it is. It's like an Indiana Jones, like an old serial, like Flash Gordon or something, except it's this guy surviving World War II. Like, it's exciting and just really sad and depressing at the same time. Yeah, it was really, it's a super amazing comic. But so, why that uh, came up is they have an exhibition of his work at uh, the AGO right now that me and Brad went to the other day.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, and it was, uh, you say you need to get to see all the original artwork and all this stuff. And, uh, And the fact that that guy made the Garbage Pail Kids, I'm sure I must have mentioned that to you (laughs) before. Yeah, because, so that's another, just like, this guy is the best. Like, he makes the highest of the highbrow and the lowest of the lowbrow. the
0: lowest of the lowbrow.
1: Yeah, and it was because, like, this is a good, uh, a good reason why, like, just needing to pay the bills is a good thing for creativity, is he worked for Topps, the gum company. He worked there for, like, 30 years, so he was always just coming up with shit, and just one of the things he came up with that happened to be a big hit was the Garbage Pail Kids, And it wouldn't seem so weird, except that he's also the guy that made the only comic book to win a Pulitzer Prize, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, just really strange. But, Is
0: that book around here, or did you take it to Toronto with you?
1: Uh, no, I don't have a copy here, so there may be one it must at home. Be
0: here. Yeah. I'm going around in your closet there and see what's in there.
1: Yeah, because I think I had... It originally came out as two soft covers, and I believe I had the re-release, the big, super-thick hardcover. You of had the hardcover.
0: The, the one I looked at was the hardcover version.
1: Yeah, so theoretically it's probably around somewhere. Honestly, though, I don't remember. Uh, so, what I wanted to get it to... It would be though,
0: worthwhile reading it again.
1: Yeah, it's it really holds up. It's really really good. So what I wanted to uh, ask you about and see what your opinion is on this is: is he put out a book uh, about the making of Mouse also called MetaMouse? And I never read the whole thing, but basically he, because uh, it was very long and you know scholarly and everything. So yeah, he basically he put out this book because he was tired of being asked questions about Mouse all the time. So he's like, all right, if I put out this big book, you know, here you go. Here's all the answers. And one of the things he brought up that I thought was really interesting, so I just wanted to see if you've had this experience at all in your life, is when he first started working on it in uh, the mid-70s, I guess it would have been, he said uh, that it was kind of hard to find information about World War II. Which seems so crazy to us now that like we know so much about it, and there's so many movies and TV shows and uh, web pages, or just, just just shows on the History Channel, or like it's inconceivable that somebody wouldn't know about World War II. But he said when he was growing up, like it was just this thing nobody really talked about, and you saw the uh, you know the tattoos uh, on people's arms of their their numbers and stuff. And you just knew it was something that happened to your parents, but you didn't really know what. And and when he started researching to do mouse, like he had to, he had to like scour basically North America. Like he had to get go to the Library of Congress and get them to find books all over to send to him. So I was just wondering. I mean, I know you're... That
0: is, that's 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 a truism for sure. Like you hear it from vets that like vets that are now, well, most of them are dead but um, they'd be 80 and 90 years old. Vets never talked about what what really went on overseas. My own father didn't. Um, I think he he started to show us stuff when we were kids, because he had a whole stash of stuff out in our garage, that, you know, German helmets and... He had those, I don't know if you remember them, but they were great big, he had two big dress, one big dress sword, and the other one was a dagger with a big swastik on the end.
1: No, I don't think I ever saw them. That,
0: uh, they used to be down in Mom's house. I don't know who's got those now. Um, but he, you know, when, when I can remember as a kid, he would have the boys out in the garage, and I'd be out in the barn, and I'd be out there too, and, but they weren't, he, we were, well, we were too young to really kind of get a grasp on it anyway. But it's been well known and well said that vets very rarely talked about what actually, like the horrors of war. Right. They never talked about it when they came back. There was no such thing as PTSD and all that stuff. You just kind of didn't talk about it. Um, As far as like the treatment of the Jews, uh, the first time I remember hearing about it, I was reading, I was about nine years old, and there was an article about the trains taking the Jews to the concentration camps, and it was in the Atlantic Advocate, and I read it. Oh my God! It was ever disturbing. I mean, it was terrible to be a kid reading this and about people. And it was really very realistic—the people being put on the trains and not being able to breathe and no food, not being able to go to the bathroom, and just—and I remember asking mom about it. And so she told me a little bit about it. And, but it was kind of like off the cuff and very kind of abrupt. And I went to bed and had nightmares about that for (laughs) a while after that, because, oh, my God, it was terrifying to think that somebody could just come to your house in the night and take you away and put you on a train and send you off to a prison camp. And this article was only about the train and a description of that. So,
1: so little the, did you know how much more horrifying stuff there well, was. yeah.
0: And then I was always kind of drawn to it because I, it was fascinating at the same time. But as far as there being a whole lot of availability of information on it, no. Like when we learned history in school, anything about it, it was very just the facts. Here's what happened factually instead of very uh, personal stories, which came out later. Like, when he's talking in the 1970s, yes, yeah, so you're probably starting to get some of it coming out then because Vietnam was very big, and there were a lot of personal stories coming out about the horrors of Vietnam because there was TV footage about it. Right. And that is when you started finding out stories about World War II and that it really wasn't the glory shows that you saw on Hollywood movies. Um, the stuff about the um, the Jews, yeah, not 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 really all that well publicized, but was was coming out because people who were involved in her fighting the Vietnam War and, and and very opposed to it and the horrors that you could see by pictures suddenly started making the connection. Well, hey, it had to be like that in World War II also. So it started opening up with a a generation of people who were very. I don't know, politically aware, Um, very interested in what went on in the past because they were fighting the same injustices in the present. But he's right about that, you know, was it in your face kind of thing? No, absolutely not. You had to go looking for it.
1: I guess that makes sense too because I'm even thinking of like more recent stuff like with you know now that we are in a more connected world I mean all this like apartheid and Pol Pot and stuff like these are terms I know but I don't really know the details and I don't really know exactly what went on so especially if, we, if this was back in the 40s and the 50s in like a world that doesn't have a zillion cable channels and the internet and stuff like yeah it would, it would just be hard to disseminate information anyway and if everyone is kind of more predisposed to sort of, like, sweeping it under the rug, or just like, let's just not talk about that anymore, <laughs> like, yeah, I guess it makes sense that, I just never thought of that, because to me, World War II, like, how do you not just hear about World War II every day of your whole life? Because <laughs> that's what it's been like for me.
0: Yeah, and you had, uh, you had a, a World too like, okay, the Americans were very isola- isolationists until, um, well, probably, yeah, after World War II. Then they started getting them, having their finger in everybody's pot. But up to that point, I mean they were late joining into both world wars, and they were very much into, yeah, being very isolationist. So they weren't, certainly weren't producing a whole lot of, uh, here's what's going on in Europe, boys. They were being real real quiet
1: about it. Yeah, I guess that would make a difference, too. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know what the European perspective is like, but, but especially, I guess, if you're in North America, like, it is just it's real far away, just this weird thing that happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago or whatever, and, yeah, it's like there's no evidence of it over here. It's just this thing. It must be crazy, too, for Art Spiegelman, like growing up and like his dad is a real piece of work that guy was a real asshole (laughs) you know like again because because of how he was naturally and because he went through this really traumatizing experience but I mean trying to deal with him would have been incredibly awful so you're growing up and you're an artist and you're like oh man my dad is the worst I can't stand him and then you start to learn about what his life was and just just be like what are you even talking about like how could anyone's life be that miserable (laughs) like that's insane
0: and, you know, when he says that it was hard to find stuff, we just think about how they, how history unfolded after World War II. I mean, there were so many horrors went on. But then you moved into a very almost uh, sanitized 1950s.
1: Yeah, yeah, pleasant built time.
0: I mean, I mean, there was all kinds of horrible stuff going on in the 1950s, make no mistake about it. But what you saw in magazines, what you saw on television, um, was all very very sanitized and clean, and, you know, white America lived in little suburban houses that were neat and manicured and tidy, and children went to school in, you know, like immaculate pressed clothing, and there was all kinds of poverty going on in the inner cities, And, and the inner cities were falling apart, actually. But that the image that was presented was this very sanitized, clean world. Well, you can't be talking about the horrors of World War II when you're also promoting that.
1: Yeah, well, like uh, I mean, Hogan's Heroes is like uh, two steps away from Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> yeah. really not much more harsh. I mean, at least by the time you get Mash and stuff, you know, they actually talk about people dying. It's not just like wacky jokes. Ah, Germans. <laughs> you
0: know? But see, that was what that was what television accepted at that time. You. In the 1950s, you couldn't have produced on television anything that was even close to a mash.
1: Man, that really must have been like a one-two punch. Like, uh, this guy Scarborough dude we know that you know, I think he must be 64 by now. So, you know, he's like, he's the, I haven't seen him in a while, actually. I haven't seen him since I got back. But uh, but he's like the guy we hang out with sometimes that just, you know, is our parents' age. For whatever reason, we became friends with him. And he is like a real big activist guy and really into, uh, you know, LSD, can open your mind. Like, he's the classic hippie guy. But it really must have been this one-two punch of all this stuff with like Vietnam and all that, and then nuclear armament and just like that was a bad ten years or so (laughs) of just like what is happening? Why is the world so insane? Like, like it's. But the nuclear
0: armament stuff really came earlier. Oh yeah. Like kids, uh, that that whole nuclear thing. I always think of that as the
1: '80s, I guess, but I guess maybe it was sooner. Earlier. It was
0: the well the the ban the bomb and all that crap that all came. That started around 19, let's see. Well, kids hiding under desks and all that stuff. That would have been the early 50s. But the, it really hit home in 1962, 62 with the embargo on Cuba when they, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Well, yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know why I think of the 80s. I guess the 80s is when it came to a head and it seemed like everyone really might die. But yeah, I guess nuclear weapons were around before oh, that. Oh
0: yeah, and the, the fear of the early 1960s a bomb like Hiroshima that could just everybody had it. They could just the the Russians and the Americans were at a standoff. Oh Jesus! Yeah, who like, was Hir- going to drop it first?
1: How am I like? Yeah, I don't know. My sense of history is horrible. I'm like, oh yeah, of course Hiroshima. <laughs> like I'm off yeah. by literally forty years.
0: <laughs> but by 1960, 61 was the Cuban embargo. Um, when the the Russians had the missiles on Cuba and they the, in Cuba and they figured they were gonna they were aimed at the U.S and uh kennedy called their bluff and and uh back well he backed off he he backed off they they might have set them off they apparently they really were there and um i think that is what a whole lot of what led to the hippie generation okay people my age we were like 10 9 10 11 years old and you heard about you know how fast the world could be blown to hell in a handcart and people had the, bomb shelters and the food inside and all this shit. <laughs> You're going to live there anyway. And there were air raid sirens that went off. Uh, Fredericton had one here. Really? <laughs> and it, it went off a couple of times for testing to make sure people, you know, kids would hide under their desks. I don't remember ever doing that, but it was big in the States where kids would hide under their desks so they would be safe from the fallout.
1: Man, that's just so crazy too, right, to <laughs> hide under See, your desk. See, then
0: that moved from there kids growing up with that fear, in, and then the Vietnam War, the Americans being involved in Vietnam. And then by that by the time, that was really big, you know. People my age were then 14, 15. Music was being sung that was very anti-war. Uh, you saw stuff on TV that was anti-war. The draft came in in the United States, and you had uh, young fellows who were cutting out to Canada because he didn't want to be drafted. Um, and then, you know, it all led up to the 60s. Uh, you know, it was, was just a boiling pot in the states. You had the, the, the walks in Selma, Alabama in 1964. You had, oh, oh God. It was, I mean, it, it just went on and on. And you had the race riots in Chicago in the 1966, 67, 68. The buildings being bombed, people protesting. You know, it was a really active time for young people. Um, to be politically aware and politically active, yep. probably more probably more so than I don't know that there ever was a time in history you when know, well, that's young totally, people were so motivated.
1: That's definitely how it seems to me. Is like yeah, like back then it, it made a lot of sense and like it seemed necessary to to you know have like uh, protests and stuff and important and like it did actually have an effect. Where I really feel like nowadays. It's just really strange, like the big one from a few years ago, uh, the One Percenters. What was that even called? Uh, Occupy Wall Street. Oh yeah. It really just seemed like, it seemed like people were just like, oh man, I want to protest. I want to, you know, have my voice heard. I want to do something, but I don't know what to protest against. <laughs> like it just seemed so arbitrary and just like it had no fire behind it. And it's like, what the hell is this even about? Where is back? Yeah, in your generation. Like everyone was going to blow up and die <laughs> like It was way more important it seemed
0: Yeah and we were kids When all that was going on All that, that and, there, and there was a whole lot of fear mongering And uh, your parents didn't talk about it um, So you grew up with this This, this fear that, and, and this feeling that You had no control over anything And then all of a sudden Here was a youth movement that said You know what yeah, we can take control. And they started marching and picking up signs and being beaten up. And, and there were a whole lot of li- really motivated leaders in those days, too. I mean, you had Martin Luther King leading all the black people down south. and um, You had, like, the Black Panther movement. You had people fighting against uh, N4, integrated schools, black and white. You know, there was, it was... Uh, it was quite a time, actually.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Like, I mean, I guess things, as far as, like, I, maybe it's a good thing, I guess, that there that, that doesn't seem to be that same kind of pressure anymore because information is freer and just information is easier to disseminate. Like, we obviously still have problems. I feel like uh, environmentalism is kind of the big problem now. But it's not like that. It's like it's like we can make slow change and kind of gentle pushing and things will change and you know it's not like like fuck we need to stop this or everyone's gonna be dead <laughs> like man that's brutal man that and I think neat.
0: a whole lot of people who marched and all that I'm, I don't know how how uh how uh, not so they were to follow. I mean, there was obviously a whole lot of leader types who were out there, you know. Oh, we're gonna march, but I think a whole lot of people went on marches and that kind of stuff just to be part of the gang.
1: Well, sure. <laughs> part of the crowd. Man, there's a. Uh, it just made me think with all the the talk of like nuclear war stuff. Uh, th- I just found this out the other day. I thought it was so interesting. Is there's this uh, pretty famous video game called Fallout that. It's basically it's about a post-apocalyptic future but in this fiction like the bombs did drop in the 50s so it's got this like weird 50s aesthetic except in a post-apocalypse situation where everything's irradiated and destroyed and the the logo for the game it's this little smiling guy giving a thumbs up with like a like winking with a thumbs up and this like a little like the kind of little mascot you might see and you know leave it to beaver times you know selling bread or something but I found out his uh, his thumbs up and his his eye closed. What that really is is it's a test that they used to do back then. Of if you see, or they would tell people, it's like one of these hiding under under the desk things. They said if you see a mushroom cloud, close one eye and hold up your thumb. And as long as your thumb covers up the mushroom cloud, you're okay. Oh my <laughs> Isn't God. that creepy? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So. So that might be the greatest game, you know, mascot in the world, because he just seems so friendly, and when you find out what it's really about, it's, like, <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> and, then, you know, it's like you could kind of imagine this guy being in, like, a little, like, chat book made for kids or something of, like, Fallout Jimmy or whatever. <laughs> like Here's here's what you do, and then you'll be okay. It's...
0: Oh, I, <laughs> I, I joke on that one.
1: Yeah, it is one of those things, too, where, like, you know, if you're in an airplane or something and you're just flying over a city, like, I guess depending on how you look at it, like if you see like human settlements and civilizations, it looks a lot like a computer chip or, or you could argue it looks like mold, (laughs) you know? And I, I really do like this one thing my friend Joel has been getting really into environmentalism lately and that's his, his kind of metaphor is like, you know, if you've got mold eating a piece of bread that you left in your fridge. And, you know, it doesn't know that once the bread's gone, we're all dead. And he's like, that's kind of like what's happening now. It's like, we're the mold, and <laughs> we're just eating the earth. Except, theoretically, we can understand that we're mold and not <laughs> not let this happen.
0: Like, yeah, but we're not doing a hell of a lot about it.
1: <laughs> but, but I always just think that's so weird, where when you look back at, like, history, back in the olden days, like, you know, four or five hundred years ago, or further back, like like, all the big... Uh, you know, the big, horrible wars and battles, they were just kind of like a joke on a a global scale. It's like, you know, you can have the biggest, bloodiest war ever, and it makes no difference. It doesn't matter. The human race is fine. The Earth is fine. And then, yeah, we get to this point in the 20th century where it's like, we could just fucking wreck this place. (laughs) Like, it's so crazy that we hit this point where we could... I mean, I feel like even if they dropped a bunch of nukes everywhere, probably some people would survive, but... But that's nuts that we could do that to ourselves. It's just really scary.
0: Well, that's what the uh, Cuban Missile Embargo stuff in 1961 was all about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's uh, a testament to the human race that uh, mostly (laughs) mostly the nukes didn't get used too much.
0: Now, when that author says that he, he couldn't find out all kinds of information, you know what, when I think back... What I know about the Cuban Missile Crisis, I found out later. At the time, I remember people talking about uh, the air raid sirens. I remember it going off, the sound that it made. But um, as far, of course I was only like 10, or 10 years old too, but as far as people talking a whole lot about, about what it meant, um, no, there was, there was no talk about that. It was just this thing about this, that, this... Now imagine this scaring somebody, too. You're just a kid, and they're talking about this bomb that can totally destroy everything. And that's really all you know. And if you hear that siren, you got to go hide somewhere. Right. And that's it. That's all you know And you're 10 years old. Can you imagine how that must freak you right out?
1: Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, all, I remember, too, um, like Art Spiegelman saying... I can't remember when he started Mouse exactly. I know the second volume came out in the early '90s, so the first one was in the mid '80s. But yeah, and he'd been working on it for a long time. So I believe '70s sometime. But since it was a comic book, and there weren't you know documentaries back then, and there weren't uh, movies about World War II that were like serious movies. So just stuff like uh, like his dad would talk about about. Um, you know different concentration camps and he he had to do tons of research just to find out what they looked like because nobody knew you know and like that's a weird thing to think of because now we you know we all have that those images like ingrained in our minds but he he didn't and he couldn't find out easily and it was like a ton of research See, I don't know, I just thought that was really interesting, Is just because that never occurred to me that there was ever a time and to me I was like, all right, World War II happened and now everyone just knows about it forever, but but there was this weird dip right afterward for the next like twenty years that was kind of this amorphous thing that people
0: didn't know well, much I mean, about. Well you know, for for somebody like his father to to tell his son about like physically what it was like. It must have been a very painful thing because you wouldn't just be describing the physical attributes of the building or like where you slept or how you ate or whatever. You'd have all this emotional baggage uh, with you too about, you know, people who died and people who were tortured and people who suffered. And how do you describe to to your offspring Uh, what it was like to be starving to death yeah and what and and living in a fear that you know as soon as you closed your eyes to have a little uh, somebody would come and beat you to get up to go to work um it it must have been incredibly incredibly difficult to describe that to somebody who god would have a real hard time getting their head around it
1: yeah especially i mean yeah like a uh... I mean, a fancy pants artist. Like, ended up being, like, just, yeah, like, just, and I like, I, I, I love that, too, about that book is the, the, you know, like, him being, Art Spiegelman being of this next generation that wanted to talk about feelings and stuff and wanted to be more expressive. And, uh, and, I'm, you know, obviously his parents' generation was like, not, nope, like, <laughs> not only oh, yeah. is And he they
0: were, they, they were well known as a generation, too, that, um, well, they had they they had life tough, eh? When they came over from wherever they came, Europe.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> they were Polish, wherever. These, but yeah, you know, wherever, sure.
0: You know, and and to to be emotional was was weak. Like even to hug your child was uh, was you were soft. So you just kind of brush them off, you know, and. And, 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 God, can you imagine what his father must have thought anyway? Tells him a little bit about what that's like. And the guy goes out and starts drawing cartoon characters about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was another like, thing. Like, how
0: serious are you taking it, fella? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that must have. Yeah, and actually that is something that uh, he said he runs into still, mostly just from people who haven't read it. But uh, people that are offended, you know, they're like, hey, man, I went through this, and you're making a comic book out of it? Like, you know, and he's like, no, I swear, if you read it, like, it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to tell your story. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're telling my story with dogs and cats and mice? Get out of here, jerk off. Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely a weird situation. And that would happen a lot, too, where his dad, his dad didn't seem, uh, like, unwilling to tell the story, but it would always be, like, he'd go over and... And would bring his recorder and get his dad to talk, but his dad would only talk for so long and then he'd be like, Alright, enough of that. Like the real reason you're here is to help me weather strip my windows, so let's get to work, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like to him that wasn't the important thing of the day to tell this story of World War II But yeah, I mean it's totally one of those things too where I mean I'm so on the other side where I feel like like, my mission in life is, like, to be able to express feelings, you know? If I actually feel, like, sad about something, I'm like, oh, good, good, I'm, I'm doing a good job or whatever. But, but obviously, yeah, like, that's not, that doesn't fit at all with that life, like...
0: No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, I, and, and people of my generation are kind of caught between, like, you, you softy types right. and that tough type. Um, we, we, we sort of waver between both. Uh, but my parents were very, well, very, very seldom showed emotion. And if they did, um, it was, they they never did it openly.
1: And it's like anger, one of those things. They, they would show anger. <laughs> right. Oh, I think, yeah, that's, uh, that's the big thing, too. I really, that's why, yeah, I feel like it's, in my soft life, that's where I do feel like yeah, it's nice to try to, to express more because yeah it is anger it's like if I, if I if i'm mad about something it's always something else i'm just you know no i just don't know i gotta dig a little deeper and figure out what it really is but for like the world war ii generation i mean just from that guy's story alone it was 90 percent luck that he made it through all that stuff but the parts that weren't luck were because he was such a totally hard-headed practical, super pragmatic person, like, yeah, if he weren't that way, he would have died. So, I mean, you yeah. can't, you can't argue with that. You probably don't want to hang out with the guy. But,
0: you know. <laughs> no, but they had to be tough and they had to kind of, when things were really down, if they were going to make it, they kind of had to look for some kind of a little bit of a silver lining. Otherwise you'd be so depressed. You'd just, you'd, well, you just, we just wouldn't make it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, even, like, that's what happened with Art Spiegelman's mom. Like, she made it through the camps, but she eventually committed suicide because she was just not, not that kind of person. And, I mean, you know, there you go. So, which, man, that's just, what a kick in the dick that must be too, right? Like, you made it. You survived. You made it through. And you're just like, like, fuck this world, <laughs> you know? Like, that's a real shame.
0: But then when you come out into a world that is trying to sanitize and sugar. Suarized everything and you you've lived through all that yeah how how can a world expect you just to put the blinders on and pretend like nothing happened and 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 everything is back to normal like yeah. what is normal after you've lived through that well let's just go and live in the suburbs where it's nice and quiet and um you know you have your shiny car and you, and uh, you know it's just, how do you how do you come to terms with a life like that wants everything to be so clean and sanitized and no oh, we don't want to talk about those horrible things that happen so let's just bury them under the rug and move on
1: yeah yeah like And that's or, kind
0: of what the the image of the 50s is like it was setting up life for all that turmoil of the 60s but on the surface nobody wanted to really talk about all that crap that went on five and six years and ten years earlier
1: yeah it really is it's just yeah it's just man just like that That's something too is weird with seeing this exhibit of all of his stuff like you know the garbage pail kids kind of tickled me because i used to buy those when as a kid but all of his other comics like the guy you know he's done tons of stuff but what other comic can live up to this story <laughs> you know like fuck world war Two. like what what like, even now, uh, I'm sure there's still a lot of really horrible stuff that happens with soldiers and war and stuff, but there was this movie Jarhead that came out in 2005, I think, about the first Iraq war, and its kind of take on, on that situation was, was, like, how boring it was. Like, how even war had changed so much that most of it was just, we have overwhelming power, the other side has no hope, we're mostly just sitting around in the desert, wondering why we're here. <laughs> like even war has gotten so much more bland or whatever. Like, I guess it's a good Well yeah, thing. when you
0: hear that most of the people, uh, Canadians that got killed over there were killed driving around and uh their vehicles hit bombs and stuff. Yeah. It wasn't anything like okay, like the concentration camp, so God forbid nobody would want that ever again. Or, you know, there's no hand-to-hand fighting. There's no trench warfare. I mean, not that anybody wants that kind of stuff. I mean, that was horrible stuff.
1: Man, I still think, but
0: that's what those guys lived through.
1: In some ways, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know a lot about war, but it, the, the thing that always sticks with me that seems like, in some ways, the worst time ever was World War I when they first invented mustard gas and they just used it all over the place. And they're like, here you go, have fun choking to death. <laughs> like, Jesus, like, like it, even by World War II, seems weird to say this about World War II, but things seemed a little more civil or there were some kind of rules of war. It wasn't just, like, anything we can do for you to die.
0: Well, just, just the trenches. Uh, every time, like, when, when winter's coming on and it's, like, November... I think about what it must have been like to be in a trench in France in November. The ground would be wet, just starting to freeze, wet, mucky. You're, I don't know, six feet down in these long trenches. Water would be oozing out into it. On the top level, you'd have a bit of snow, and it would be cold and damp and wet. And if your feet got wet. You'd never be able to dry your socks out, because they'd be those heavy heavy socks, those gray coats that they wore. Once those got wet, and you had to put that thing on, you'd never keep warm. You'd just be freezing all the time. And the rats would be running up and down in there, because, I mean, this is their home that you've now created these trenches in, and you live in there. Ugh.
1: Well, you know, that's one thing that it kind of ties into, like, the weird sanitization of the 50s and the early 60s, but, uh, of, uh, this really surprised me, is uh, you know, like Rambo, the Sylvester Stallone movies. I always think of those as the 80s Rambo, you know, Rambo 2 these sequels where it's just a guy with a machine gun single-handedly saving POWs and it's just silly and ridiculous but I saw the first Rambo movie a couple years ago and it was like good. It was like he was a uh, a Vietnam vet and he was like going through town and he was all, you know, kind of PTSD and crazy and the sheriff starts fucking with him and he sort of snaps and just kill some cops and they're chasing him through the woods and it was kind of like a real movie about some guy that got really messed up in the war and it's just funny that the first one was like a legitimate film and then the the, the subsequent ones were just ridiculous like action movie like we're gonna make a, a lunchbox out of Rambo 80s bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was surprised because, uh, yeah, like they, they really like that was a weird time too like the 80s was like a reverse a reverse 50s where the 50s was just trying to be nice and the 80s was like look how fun it is to shoot guns at people <laughs> all right
0: yeah it was a little with the old pendulum going back and forth you go through the horrors of certain things and then it just kind of comes back to uh, oh yeah let's just have some fun with this stuff
1: yeah i kind of like how now like the media is so just uh, spread out and disseminated through so many different channels that like, in some ways, it seems kind of comforting to me in a weird way to have all of that, um, that sort of mass togetherness feeling. I guess also because I was a kid in the 80s, so I have fond memories of it. But stuff like, you know, Pac-Man and Michael Jackson and Mr. T, like, everyone knew what it was, and everyone was kind of on the same little pop culture wavelength, where it's just not like that at all anymore. Now just everyone's into their own thing, and there's no big stuff like that. But on the other hand, also, they can't just feed you some weird notion of the past or of world events and, you know, expect you to believe it. (laughs) Like now everyone's a little more smartened up, I think, about how stuff is.
0: Well, people, if people aren't smartened up, they have no excuse because there is so much easy access to information.
1: Yeah, because that's a weird thing too. I guess just maybe I should start wrapping this up, I guess. But like even with, with Art Spiegelman and researching stuff for Mouse. Like, the only reason he did is because of his dad, you know, like, the primary source. Like, here's a guy standing right in front of me that went through all this, and if if I didn't live with this guy and grow up with him, I wouldn't care either, just like no one else cares, (laughs) you know, or just like, you'd just let it go, you wouldn't think about it, or you wouldn't do the research.
0: The thing they found, too, uh, it won't hit your generation, but they found people of my generation. We didn't talk to our parents about war. Right. When we were younger, because hey, you got to lead, a hey? you got all kinds of stuff to do yourself. But as we got older, and of course our parents got older, we started looking more into like what what were their what were their lives like that made our lives what we are made 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 us who we are because there is definitely a connection there, and you oftentimes will hear people who are okay my age but when we got to be in our 40s and our 50s we were starting to gain this interest of you're looking more outside yourself you're not just your own little sphere of who you are now you're looking as to how you became what you are so then you look into the past and then we started asking questions and as you get older in your 50s and 60s you got more time and of course you know more stuff too so you know what to ask and I know myself. Yeah, I started asking, well my father, I didn't quite have the opportunity because he was gone when I was about thirty. Um, but but my mother, before she died, oh, yeah, I asked her a whole lot about what life was like when she was like twenty and thirty, and where was she when uh, you know World War II ended and they got the news, and you know, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, that's definitely, and that's uh, yeah, well, that, that's nice too. We can like uh, funnel it down through the generations and then spread it out through the internet because yeah, I think all that stuff is really interesting. So,
0: and actually, see, so you're doing kind of the same thing right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you know what's weird? Even though we're talking about World War II and the horrors and blah blah blah, I really, like I said at the start of this call, like I was just like, oh man, I just feel like crap today. Today sucks. But now I feel great. I don't know. It's like, even though we're talking about horrible stuff, it's just you know, it's nice to talk and blab about things and whatever.
0: Especially things that are just not all about, um, like you know, what's going on today in our lives. Right. Because there's a whole, a whole civilization of history out there that made brought us to the point we are now, and to learn about those things and and the people who who I don't know created history and life and made change and um, yeah, it's fascinating. And that's one thing I love I, history, as you can tell. Well,
1: that's one thing I think about a lot too. Is like I just wonder how totally bizarre my view of history is compared to how it really was. Because like, uh, like I think we talked about in one of the earlier shows, just about like the the, the old West, and just even simple stuff like that. There were black cowboys, but like my idea of the old West is just from movies. And then as you go back further and further. Like, it's probably less and less in line with reality. And once you get back to dinosaurs, I mean, I'm sure that's not even close to what dinosaur world was like, because we only found so many dinosaurs, and we're kind of guessing. And Or I, when I was at the museum the other day, because after we saw the Art Spiegelman thing, we walked around, and they have a lot of, uh, like, Greek-Roman statues. I don't know which one they were. But even that surprised me when I found out that, you know, like, there are these beautiful marble statues, and they look so cool but then when they they realized at some point that those things used to be painted and they looked awful (laughs) because you know it's just these uh, whatever paint you could make out of crushed beetles and stuff and of course they were painted like why would they not paint them but they look really classy and awesome now but back then they looked really garish (laughs) Uh. and it just suddenly changes your whole view of gladiators and stuff and Yeah, I mean, that's just a tiny detail, but I have a feeling my my conception of the past is probably 99% just what I saw in movies and not really even close to what it really was.
0: What fascinates me about it is, okay, take those statues. I think back and think about, okay, the time when that was actually created, and the guy did that, some guy who would have been just like you or me or whatever, just living his everyday life in Pompeii or wherever, and he created that thing out of, with, with out of some specialty tools that he probably made himself. And yeah, his paint he made up out of all kinds of crud that was around. Like, but he made that, and he was. So it's not he's not he's just not a a name in a book somewhere. He was an actual living being.
1: Yeah. Man, one thing we saw that blew my mind were these prayer beads from the 11th century that they were like the size of a walnut and you could uh, open them like they had a little clasp like they were like a little compact or something and you open it up and it's like this elaborate carving of like the Last Supper or something like crazy complicated that somebody had just carved out of this piece of wood is unbelievable it's like this must have taken forever but nobody knows who they are or anything. Well, I think I, I can't remember if I brought this up too, but that I heard someone say this the other day about, uh, you know, as far as trying to cement your place in history and what a waste of time it is, is um, like the guy, he said basically, he's like, can you name 10 people from the 15th century? And nobody can because, you know, maybe you remember 10 people from there, but you wouldn't know what century they're from or whatever. And that's weird to think about the 20th century, that if anyone remembers anybody, it's probably gonna be Hitler. <laughs> you know, isn't that oh, weird? Oh, great
0: time! oh
1: yeah. <laughs> Maybe Einstein, and that's it. <laughs> no one's remembering anything else that happened. And I just think that's so bizarre, but it's probably true. He's like the Caesar of the 20th century. Yeah. Hopefully, they won't remember him as a, a noble conqueror, <laughs> but who knows, right? Uh,
0: who knows?
1: Napoleon or something. Like, they were all terrible, <laughs> but we think they're so great now.
0: Well, we won't be around to know what they think of them, so.
1: Yeah, so I guess I better get rolling. Gotta go. Gotta go. <laughs> it seems so, so weird to like. All right, that's enough of talking about the horrors of war. Let me go see Gilmore Girls improv in the beautiful <laughs> yeah. present. Okay. Thanks, thanks for everything, Greatest Generation. <laughs> Time for me to go. <laughs> the spoils of what you accomplished.
0: <laughs> all right, enjoy it.
1: Cool. So I'll talk to you next
0: Monday then. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Good night.